Welcome to the M&A Cornercast, a podcast focused on the world of mergers and acquisitions. Helping inform the business owners and advisors we work with every day. Hello and welcome to another uh, Cornerstone Cornercast podcast. My name is Scott Bushke, Managing Partner and Founder, and today we are lucky enough to have Lamar Stanley with us from GenCap. Hello, Lamar. Hey, Scott. How are you? Great. How are you doing today? Doing good. A little chilly, but we're getting through it here in Nashville. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's not the high of six that we have in Green Bay today, but <laughs> we won't get into that. that. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no. Well, thanks for joining us today. And maybe if you could just give a little bit of background on yourself and what kind of a firm you work for. I am the director and head of business development here at GenCap America. And we are a lower middle market private equity firm based here in Nashville. And by private equity standards, we're a little bit older firm. We've been doing this since the late 80s, so over 30 years. But We've been remarkably consistent since the very beginning in what we focus on. We do deals in that 2 to $10 million of EBITDA range. We broadly describe the industries that we look at as basic industries, but mostly manufacturing, distribution, and basic service companies. And all of our deals look like management buyouts. We like to back an internal team that is not the primary owner when we arrive on the scene. And uh, we back that team to basically help with a baton pass. We ultimately like to describe ourselves as transition capital to the owners that we're working with. And on the personal side, I've been with GenCap now for five years. And before that, I was with a private equity fund of funds. And before that, I actually served in the military for 10 years. And so had to go to business school for a short stint in there to figure out how to add and subtract again. But um, (laughs) spent most of my private career here at GenCap. Great. Thank you. There's committed funds, there's fundless sponsors. What kind of fund is GenCap? So we have a committed fund. We're currently investing out of Fund 7, and we have a completely institutional investor base. So lots of state pension funds and endowments invest with us. And we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of repeat investors across time that that really like our model that we like to describe as the low beta model where, you know, consistent over time. We're not really the market timers type. Yeah, being around 30 years and on your seventh fund, you're like a dinosaur for this industry that most people have come (laughs) in in the last five to 10 years. So that's saying something for you and your team. We're sitting here in middle of February, 2021. What do you say the last year, what does it look like from a deal flow standpoint? I know that's one of your main jobs is to find deals all over the country. Has that been more deals on the marketplace because people are looking to get out because of COVID and they're burnt out or less deals because they don't think they can get a good value now? Or what have you seen? Yeah, going back to 2020, We actually just recently did our end of year deep dive into the numbers about where deals came from and what deal flow looked like. And actually in 2020, we were only about 20% down in terms of deal flow from 2019, which if you take into account that we lost the months of May and April to some degree, we were thrilled with that. But particularly because 2019 was a record year for us in terms of deal flow So to only take a 20% step down, we were happy about. I think that is most indicative of what a quick start we had in early 2020 and then how quickly things rebounded after Labor Day. So deal flow picked up after Labor Day in 2020, and then it to some degree tailed off and it really has not revved up completely, if you want to call it that, like we saw in the post-Labor Day era of 2020. And we think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, there were probably some business owners out there that were waiting to see how 
elections would shake out, particularly the Georgia Senate races. And then we also believe that there are probably some business owners that are waiting to tie up their 2020 numbers to demonstrate that their business is back on track to where it was pre-COVID. But we still think, even though, and just to give you a number around what I'm talking about, in 2020, we've only seen about a third of the deals this January that we saw in January of 2020. So pretty significant drop off. But again, we think the deals are coming probably in late Q1 or Q2, because what we keep hearing from intermediaries is that there are a lot of business owners that COVID demonstrated to them, and and frankly, all of us, that we just can't see all the risks that exist out there. So the business owner had a three-year plan, they might have moved it up for that reason, as well as the fact that there still seem to be some potential tax changes looming. And so we suspect that there are business owners that are going to take advantage of this year when there's still lots of buyers out there like us, frankly, that have lots of dry powder and cheap debt to get deals done. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Just to give the listeners an idea, how many deals does a firm like yours look at, you know, maybe pre-COVID or kind of a normal year average last five years, how many deals come across your desk in a year's time frame? Sure. So we have rough numbers of goals every year of what we like to see, but I can tell you that we see in excess of a thousand deals a year. Now, do we dig in on over a thousand? No. There are plenty of deals. The vast majority of those we pass on pretty quickly. To give you a sense of the ones that we actually dig in on, what we call here in-house as quote unquote quality deals. And it really quality just means it fits our model pretty well. Right. Not to say that the other deals aren't quality, but you know, the ones that we're going to spend a lot of time on. In 2019, we worked on about 290, I think was the number. And then in 2020, you know, which represents that 20% downshift, uh, we only worked on about 230. So if you take into account that we did three deals last year of that 230, it's a, <laughs> the, the funnel tightens quick. I'll say that. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So how is your model, you know, we talked about different business models. With COVID, have you changed anything in your model or are you doing anything different or is it pretty much the same, just virtual? Are you traveling to go out and see those companies that you, you know, maybe you put an indication of interest in and you make it to the next round? Are you doing virtual calls or are you going in person or what does that look like? Yeah. So the model really hasn't changed. And I feel like that is as much a demonstration of how quickly the market has bounced back. There really hasn't been a need for change. But like I mentioned in my intro, that our model is not one where we try and time markets. So they're changing the model was never really a consideration. What has changed significantly, to your point, are the processes. Because we are always backing internal management teams, we really value that time that we get to spend with owners and their telling us about their next layer of management, or in some cases, we actually get to involve them in the process. We really like to get the feel of the cloth, if you will. And so that has been very difficult, particularly for the two deals that we closed in July of last year. So in the depths of COVID, you couldn't really get that many touches. And so I'll just say that we did a lot more Zooms. The quality of earnings diligence that was done on all of our deals was done completely remotely on all three. And we just had to be really intentional about what we were going to get done whenever we visited. We visited all the companies that we closed on last year twice. But when you have limited opportunities to interact with people, you get pretty serious about what you need to know and what you need to know first. Right. This is a question that I get a lot when I'm talking with business owners or, you know, especially management teams. Most management teams or business owners that, you you know, you talked about, hey, we want to partner with management or with the owner to take some chips off the table, maybe sell 70, 80% of the company and roll 20 or 30 into the new company. 
And I just did a deal where it was an 80-20 deal where they rolled 20%. But the management team, they don't understand private equity. You know, they don't research this stuff or read articles about it. And they were like a lot of people scared of, holy cow, this private equity group is going to come in. You know, it's got a $200 million fund and and they're going to change everything. And are we going to lose our job? Is the culture going to change? Are they going to tell us what to do every single day and kind of sit in our office and just watch us? Maybe talk a little bit to those assumptions or myths and how do you work with a management team? What are they still kind of in charge of or where do they have autonomy? And where do you bring some value to that management team or that group as you uh, now own the majority of the company and moving forward? That is actually a really common concern with business owners that we are working with. And I think it's a result of intermediaries who bring us in when they have owners that are concerned about that, because admittedly, those are where we shine. We are not the group that's going to parachute in a ton of operators and lop off heads and trend fat and make lots of wholesale changes to businesses. What probably came through in my description of GenCap is what's most important to us is stability. And the best way to maintain stability is to stick with the existing team. So what we always like to assure business owners, particularly the ones that you know are concerned about, one, their own role, but two, their management teams who will probably have a more significant role going forward, is that we're not going to replace management. We want to stick with those guys. We like the fact that they know where all the bodies are buried. They know how to keep the business in the fairway. They know what the low-hanging fruit is for growth that maybe they didn't execute on just because it didn't make sense from a capital investment perspective. And we just feel like you benefit a lot more by keeping that corporate knowledge around. So what we always like to tell people is that we are the best group to help pass the grocery store test. And that is, you know, if an owner sells a company and let's say they depart completely, they don't roll over any equity, we're a great group that allows them to go to the grocery store without having to fear bumping into an employee and running to another aisle. Because we're not the group that's going to shutter a bunch of stores and fire a bunch of people and have some disgruntled employees in their hometown that they now have to avoid. Now, that is, you know, how we benefit the stability. How we help improve the business is doing this for 30 years. We have a lot of experience in kind of industry agnostic business improvement methods. So if there needs to be an ERP installed, we have experience with that. If you need to hire a head of sales to come in and help or just more salesmen, we have a lot of experience doing those types of things. And then we also There are just ways to cut expenses without cutting headcount that we can assist with, whether it be, you know, shipping costs or how to get equipment at a cheaper rate or or whatever it happens to be. It's just there are a lot of things that we do that don't really apply to any specific industry that apply to all industries pretty broadly. And that's where we bring our greatest benefit. Great. I know you talk broadly about the industries you're interested in. Do you have any specific industries that you're looking at right now or any add-ons for current platforms? I will say that we are still pretty broad. What matters most to us is that management dynamic where we can back a next layer of management to buy out the owner. And uh, unfortunately, there's no SIC code for that. So we have to cast a pretty wide net. But that said, there is one company in our portfolio, a company called Mid-America Specialty Services. And what they are doing is facilities, maintenance. You could also describe it as architectural restoration They're the type of business that comes in once a year to your class A office building and helps clean up, refinish the stone floors, use specialty chemicals to refurbish metals, do pressure washing, all all the stuff that makes the place look like new without having to do a full scale renovation of a lobby. So a really good uh, business for a building owner who's looking to make the place look great without having to spend all the money, go towards a renovation. So 
that's where we're most focused on add-ons. But outside of that, we're still pretty broad in our searches. Makes sense. And the question I was going to ask you was, you know, what do you look for most in your companies? I think I know the first answer, which is that, that management team to really have a good management team that's going to stick around after the sale or the owner sticking around after the sale. But what would be the number two? If you go, hey, they got a management team we think we can get behind. What's the second most important thing that you would look for in a company? It's compliments, number one. So you got it. And number two would be stability, stability above everything else. We like to describe ourselves as the low beta model. We are the guys who think the first rule of making money is don't lose money. And so the best way to do that is to stick with the existing team. And what we want to see complementary to having that existing team stick around is a stable, consistent track record of cash flow. So while you know there are plenty of private equity funds that want to see a track record of cash flow, what makes us a little bit unique is that there's no investment that we make that's really predicated on a uh, growth thesis. What's most important to us, even if it looks like the business is flat, is that you know they've been consistent with their cash flow for a number of years preceding our investment. Got it. And then on the flip side of that, you know, you look at a thousand and you buy three, like a lot of other firms out there. Mm-hmm. So what are the ones that give you a that, that's a quick no, not the ones that are outside of your scope, but when they're inside your scope for the listeners, if they have these one or two things that maybe they could learn now to work on these things or try to enhance them versus just letting them be whatever they are and, and then find out down the road that they're not as saleable or as valuable as they thought they were. What are that one or two item? Is it customer concentration or what would it be that would turn you guys off on a deal otherwise, even if it had a good management team? There's really three red lines that we have, uh, one of which, again, kind of going back to that theme of management, is if there's really no heir apparent behind the existing owner, those are tougher deals for us just because we do like to back that next rung of management. The second thing really revolves around downside protection, and that is customer concentration. We don't really have a stated absolutely no more than percentage of revenue. But I would say it's somewhere around 25 or 30% customer concentration as it relates to percentage of revenue. So if you have one customer that's over 25% of revenue or represents over 25% of revenue, that's going to be really tough for us. Now, is it a deal killer? No, because as you well know, not every customer is the same in terms of how sticky it is to the business. There might be a great reason why that business has to have this company. Um, and therefore makes them a little stickier. But if that company is, let's say, Walmart, that's going to be really difficult for us. Right. And then the last one is is just volatility. kind of goes back to that stability point. If the company didn't make money in 2019, made $3 million in 20, that's a little tough for us. You know, if it that yo-yo that, effect, that kind of yo-yo effect that you see, yeah, kind of exactly. with no real reason. Yeah. Yeah, some of the guys here describe it as, you know, if it's if it looks like a heart monitor, it's, it's tough for us. <laughs> Anything else that you want to share with our listeners that you think they should know in the last 30 seconds or minute here? All I'll say is that we're really excited about 2021. Like I said, we're very optimistic about deal flow this year. We still have a lot of capital to deploy out of Fund 7, and we're just aggressively looking for situations where owners would like to pass the baton to their next layer of management. Well, thank you, Lamar. This has been a great segment. I really appreciate your time. If someone wants to get a hold of you, Lamar, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, you can find us, GenCap America. Our website is www.gencapamerica.com. Or if you just want to shoot me a note, lstanley at gencapamerica.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Everybody, thank you for listening. This is Scott Bushke with another episode of our Cornercast. 
thank you for tuning in to the M&A Cornercast. Hopefully we gave you some insight into the world of mergers and acquisitions. We'll see you back again with a brand new episode.